Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 31 of Criminal Broads, a true crime and history podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. I'm your host, Tori Telfer, true crime writer and aficionado of summer farmers markets, despite the fact that every time I enter one, I leave a poorer woman. Um, you guys. Oh my goodness. Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, listening to the last episode on the Nazi killers. I loved hearing your feedback and uh, hearing that the episode also made you want to stand up on your chair and scream in joy. (laughs) Um, I got a lot of messages and notes from people saying that the episode made them cry. I believe the phrase ugly cry was used at least once. I kid you not, when I got those (laughs) notes, I would often start tearing up myself. I feel like I was such a raw ball of emotions after doing those two World War II episodes back to back. Um, So hearing that you were also a raw ball of emotions (laughs) made my raw emotions (laughs) re-triggered. And so know that I was crying in solidarity along with you. Um, It was also a funny feeling to be like, oh, I'm so glad the episode made you cry, but I'm sorry that the episode made you cry. Anyway, it was it was really great hearing your feedback. I'm really glad you liked it. You may be happy to note that we are sort of back in our classic true crime world for this episode. That being said, don't worry, this is not a boring case. This is a very odd case. I doubt many of you will have heard of it. You know I like to do my more obscure cases. Um, more often than not. But once I started getting into this, I was just like, what? She did what? Her reasoning was what? So, um, I hope you enjoy it. We are going to a very, very distant time and place in this episode. We are going to the early 2000s in Orange County, California. A wild land. Some might call it the Wild West. Um, what was going on in 2005 in California. I assume there were some cool skateboarders doing their thing. Emo music was probably happening still, right? I myself was not in California, um, but getting ready to go to college. And um, what was happening in this specific Orange County community was that a lot of the population here um, was accustomed to visiting a fortune teller to to get a spell, to get a curse, to get their fortunes told, to get the future told. Now, in this community, it was not weird to see a fortune teller at all. It was very much a part of daily life. And your fortune teller could be kind of your therapist, your guru, your best friend, or if things went wrong, your mortal enemy. Let's get started. fortune tellers and then there are fortune tellers 
There are fortune tellers who have storefronts with names like Madame Bianca's Psychic Readings, decorated with blinking signs and interiors full of vaguely religious artwork and tarot cards and an evil eye or two. All of it a mishmash of cultures designed to convey a sort of ambiguously mystical sensibility. And then there are the fortune tellers. Psychics with so much power that they don't need a storefront at all. People know where to find them. People know that they know exactly what they're doing. Ha Jade Smith was a fortune teller with real power. She lived in Little Saigon in Orange County, California, a neighborhood with a large Vietnamese population and, admittedly, a lot of fortune tellers. But none of them were as good as Ha. She was so famous that Vietnamese people would come from all around the United States to visit her, and in turn, she would visit Vietnamese communities all across the United States, even going as far as New York to meet with her clients. There were plenty of fortune-telling storefronts in Little Saigon, but Ha didn't need a storefront. She worked from home. She never used tarot cards. She didn't need them either. You'd never find her, say, <laughs> gazing into a crystal ball. She kept a huge altar made of dark wood in her living room, and that was it. Want to curse someone you hate? Want to know if your husband is cheating on you? Ha could do it all and more, but it would cost you. $6,000 for a single spell. Maybe $9,000. Lady Ha was expensive, but she was also the best, said one of her clients later. If you want a man to love you, she'd be the one you'd want to see. Even if he were married, she could make him leave his wife because she's a sorceress, a witch. Everyone knows that Lady Ha was the real thing. One look, that's all it took. She'd know everything about you. People also feared Lady Ha. She was incredibly glamorous, and you'd see her around town driving her Mercedes and shopping for expensive jewelry. And then there were the rumors that she was a bit too witchy, a bit too real. That she had a plant who ate eggs and sometimes even chickens. That she worshipped demons and kept a series of creepy porcelain dolls in her home that were possessed by the ghosts of virgins. And even if the possessed dolls were only a rumor, there was no denying that Ha knew a thing or two about the darker side of life. First of all, she was married to a sorcerer who lived back in Vietnam. Second of all, in 1987, she and her young daughter, Anita Vo, had escaped from Vietnam to a refugee camp in Thailand before eventually making their way to the U.S. Ha knew all about creeping through the night with your heart in your throat. She also knew what it was like to experience terror in her new home in Orange County. Her house there had been broken into twice, the second time, She'd been home, and the robbers tied her up and took $372,000 worth of jewelry and cash. Ha kept her money at home, not in banks, as did many local fortune tellers who were paid in cash, which unfortunately made them all frequent targets for robbers. After these incidents, her sorcerer husband begged her to move somewhere else, telling her that the house wasn't safe, that it was full of negative energy now. She ignored him and put up bars on her windows instead. But by 2005, Ha's life was looking pretty good. Her daughter, Anita, was about to turn 24 and had just been accepted into law school. 
Her fortune-telling business was booming. She herself was about to go to Vietnam just to see a client. Someone wanted her services badly enough to fly her all the way over there. It was always tricky, of course, dealing with these clients and their endless needs. In fact, she was currently dealing with a very annoying client, a woman who lived in North Carolina and who just couldn't accept that there were certain things beyond Ha's power, that Ha could predict the future, but she couldn't change reality itself. This woman was growing more and more demanding, and by February of 2005, Ha felt like she needed to say something. So she sent the woman a note that read, Sorry, I cannot do this for you. Unfortunately, that particular woman had a lot of trouble taking no for an answer. Just like Ha Jade Smith, Tanya Nelson knew what it was like to escape from her home country. Tanya had been a child when her family ran from Vietnam. They settled in Orange County, where her parents prospered and grew rich, and eventually had 16 children. Tanya went to high school there, married her first husband, had a son, got divorced, married again, and had three more children. Like many of her fellow Vietnamese immigrants, Tanya believed in fortune-telling, no question, which is how, one day in the mid-90s, she ended up on Ha Jade Smith's doorstep. The two women became what some might call friends, and their relationship stretched on for the next 10 years. Tanya consulted Ha for advice about love and advice about her business, which was a lingerie shop located in Little Saigon. Her shop was struggling, and in fact, by March of 2000, she and her husband had to file for bankruptcy after racking up over $200,000 in credit card debts and personal loans. What should I do, Lady Ha? Tanya asked. Eventually, Ha felt that she had the answer. Tanya should move her shop to North Carolina, where she would have more success, said Ha. And so Tanya packed her bags and moved south with her children, leaving her husband behind. Now, she and her husband weren't divorced, and he would visit her twice a year, but let's just say that Tanya hadn't been focused on her marriage in quite some time. For about a decade, she'd been having an on-and-off-again affair with her brother-in-law, George. Her husband had no idea. When Tanya moved to North Carolina, George had conveniently moved to Georgia, and so the two of them were able to stay in touch. Well, sort of. The thing was that at some point, George had decided that he was tired of this underhanded love story, and he had actually gone off and got himself a new girlfriend. He wanted to move on. He knew there was no real future with his sister-in-law. He even had the audacity to get engaged. This drove Tanya mad. Of course, Tanya had been consulting Ha about this affair all along, and it seems likely that around the time of George's engagement, Tanya was demanding that Ha help solve this problem for her. 
We don't know if Ha cast any spells or gave Tanya any specific advice on the matter, though given their 10-year relationship, it seems very likely that she did. But when Ha's involvement didn't solve Tanya's problems, Tanya decided to take things into her own hands. And when Tanya took things into her own hands, things generally got violent. She told George that she was going to kidnap his fiance, cut off her fingers, and mail the fingers back to him. She drove past the fiance's house and sprayed graffiti on the outside, phrases like cocksucker and lover boy run before she sucks you dry. She even broke into this poor woman's house and stole a photo of George right out of her photo album. Somehow, all of this charming behavior didn't work, and George didn't seem to be dumping the fiancé and crawling back to Tanya. In fact, he even had the gall to go ahead and get married. Tanya immediately gave them both a wedding gift, a private detective who she hired to track the new wife's every move. In the meantime, her new lingerie shop was doing poorly, maybe because she was spending so much time breaking into other people's houses. Ha had predicted that moving her business from California to North Carolina would mean great success for Tanya, but that was in no way coming true, and eventually Tanya even lost her house. Around this point, she seemed to be making more and more demands from Ha, whether those demands were make George love me or make my business succeed or most likely both, we don't know for sure. And so eventually, by February of 2005, Ha responded with that note. Sorry, I cannot do this for you. In other words, I have tried, but I cannot change reality, and you are just going to have to accept that. But Tanya didn't hear that. Instead, she looked around at the wreckage of her life and decided that someone was going to have to pay for this. In North Carolina, Tanya had a friend. His name was Philippe Zamora, and he would have done anything for Tanya. Not because she was such a charming, lovely, sunshiny woman, but because Tanya knew how to get him what he desperately wanted. Philippe was gay, but almost no one in his life knew it. He was married to a woman, he had children. His wife did know about his liaisons with other men, but most of his family was entirely ignorant of it. Tanya knew, though, and Tanya became Philippe's lifeline. She would connect him to other gay men. Around her, he didn't have to hide who he was. Now, on the surface, this may have seemed like Tanya was being extremely kind to Philippe, but what she was really doing was creating someone who was psychologically dependent on her. Without Tanya, Philippe would be lost and alone. As Philippe's niece wrote later, Tanya was the first person who seemed to understand him, the person who recognized him for who he was and did not judge him. Instead, she rewarded him, validated him, and offered him hope. It was as if she were his god. And so when Tanya decided that people were going to have to start dying because no one was making her life any easier, she knew exactly who to call for help. She called, and 
Philippe came running, as he always did. As Tanya explained to Philippe, Ha Jade Smith had cheated her out of a lot of money. None of her predictions had come true. Tanya had moved her lingerie shop to North Carolina, and she'd been so unsuccessful that she ended up losing her house. Instead of marrying her brother-in-law and riding off into the sunset with him, she'd watched as that same brother-in-law ignored all her graffiti and her break-ins and her private detectives and married someone else. Everything in her life was going wrong, and it was all Ha Jade Smith's fault. She was the one who should have seen this coming. She was the one who didn't stop it. And now, she was the one who was saying that she couldn't change reality, that these were problems she couldn't fix. Because of this, Tanya told Philippe, she would have to pay. But that wasn't the end of Tanya's plan. Ha's daughter, Anita, was going to have to pay, too. Sure, she was only 23, and she was about to head off to law school, and she had her entire bright young life ahead of her, but she was the daughter of the fortune teller, and her mother's sins were on her hands. Tanya promised Philippe that if he came to Orange County to help her with this unpleasant little issue, she would ply him with as many gay Californian lovers as he wanted. And so it wasn't long before the two of them were booking tickets from North Carolina to Southern California, where Tanya made two appointments, one with a potential lover for Philippe, and another with her longtime friend, Ha Jade Smith, the best fortune teller in Little Saigon. And now, a quick break for this show's sponsors. If you are listening to this podcast, you probably feel like you are actually meant to be a detective. Well, good news. With a brand new digital murder mystery from Crimmy Box, you can be. Crimmy Box's latest game is called Missing in Jericho, and here's the plot. After a last disturbing post on her social media account, Alice has disappeared without a trace. Her last posts lead you to the old mining town of Jericho, where it's up to you to find Alice or capture her killer. Using nothing more than your phone, you can play Missing in Jericho by solving riddles, interrogating suspects, and looking over police findings. But before you do any of that, the game needs your help as they just launched their Kickstarter and need a bit of support. So if you pledge to their Kickstarter, you can get a head start on the game and can start gathering vital clues immediately. Head to crimmybox.com to find out more. That's C-R-I-M-I box, like criminal box, but crimmybox.com. Good luck, detective. Our second sponsor is Care Of, a subscription service that delivers delicious vitamins and supplements customized for your specific health needs right to your doorstep or your mailbox if you don't have a doorstep like me. All you have to do is take an online quiz to find out exactly what vitamins and supplements you should be taking. It can be extremely hard to figure that out in this world of pseudoscience and fake news, but Care-of makes it easy to find out what you need because um, they have this online quiz, which I took, and it's really fun, it's really easy. It asks you about your health goals so you feel very mature. Um, you can pick something like sleep or stress or fitness or brain or skin or immunity or bones. And you can say, I want help with this. <laughs> so Care-of will uh, do the quiz and recommend vitamins and supplements that will help you get 
stronger bones or better sleep. Listen, it's backed by science. Do it this way. Do your health this way. And don't do it by following the teachings of Anne Hamilton Byrne or Jasmine Heen, the two cult leaders we've covered on this podcast so far. Okay? Also, we covered Jim Jones' girlfriend. I forgot that. Um, anyway, upgrade your health routine today, like the crime-fighting broad you are, by going to TakeCareOf.com and entering the code CRIMINALBROADS for 25% off your first order. Again, for 25% off your order, go to TakeCareOf.com and enter the code CRIMINALBROADS. And last but certainly not least, I have a new podcast I'd like to tell you about. It is called Nevertheless, She Existed. And it is the radical feminist history party podcast your ears did not know they were craving. Each episode brings you the story of an erased woman from history, whether that's a gay nun who was burned as a witch, a badass forgotten poet, a lady warrior, or, and this is speaking our language listeners, the queen of the NYC thieving scene. The podcast launches today, July 31st, with an episode called Witches Get Stuff Done. So check it out by typing Nevertheless She Existed into your favorite podcast app's search bar and hitting subscribe today. On April 21st, 2005, Tanya and Philippe knocked on Ha's door for the third time that week. They'd been hanging out with her a lot lately. Once, they showed up with a dozen red roses, a gesture of friendship, a bouquet of everything is totally cool between us. Another time, they took her out to dinner. Sure, sometimes they seemed to be peering around her house a bit intensely, looking for things like, oh, security cameras, but in general, they were being so nice. And today, on April 21st, Tanya said they were here to take her out to lunch. Well, let's chat for a bit and then we'll go grab something delicious, said Tanya. And hey, <laughs> now that I think about it, why don't you call up Anita and ask her to join us for lunch? It would be so fun to have your daughter along. And so Ha called her daughter and asked her to come home. At first, Tanya and Ha were just chatting. They talked for a while about palm reading, and eventually Anita showed up. Now there were four people in the house, four people just talking. If Ha sensed a change in the energy of the house, or felt a shiver of pure evil pass through her, or saw that at some point Tanya and Philippe exchanged a meaningful glance, well, we'll never know. But there's a chance she saw at least part of this day coming. One of her sisters, Lone, said later that Ha had always known she'd come to an untimely end. The gifted always die young, said Lone. My sister knew it. She just didn't realize Anita would, too. So if there was one thing that Ha couldn't have anticipated that day, it was this moment. The moment when Tanya lunged for one of her own kitchen knives, sprang at her daughter, pinned her to the ground, and began stabbing her to death. 
Philippe froze. Ha began to scream. Tanya looked over at them. Kill her. Kill her, she shouted. Don't let her scream. Panicking, Philippe grabbed at the nearest heavy object, a wine bottle, and smashed it over Ha's shoulder. He then wrestled her to the ground, grabbed two kitchen knives, and began stabbing her in the head and neck over ten times. It happened so quickly, he said later. I didn't know what to do. I didn't want her to scream. Afterwards, the killers rinsed off in the shower. Then Tanya ransacked the place. She was looking for money, but didn't find much of it, so instead she filled her pockets with jewelry, credit cards, and cell phones, grabbed a set of Louis Vuitton luggage, and hurried out of there, along with Philippe. In this small way, Ha Jade Smith was already defeating them from beyond the grave. They missed hundreds of thousands of dollars. See, after her burglary, Ha had gotten especially clever about hiding her real valuables, and so there were stacks of cash inside her coffee pot and priceless jewels tucked into her vacuum cleaner. Tanya and Philippe never saw any of it. With their stolen goods, Tanya and Philippe drove straight to Walmart, where they purchased gallons of white paint. They then tore back to the house, back to their own crime scene, and poured the paint all over the faces and hands of the dead women. When the bodies were discovered a day and a half later, this white paint would be the most mysterious part of the case. The cops weren't sure what it meant. Was it some ritualistic thing linked to fortune-telling? Some way of obscuring evidence? To this day, no one is entirely sure why Tanya picked out the white paint. Later, writing about the crimes, Philippe's niece would point out that in some Vietnamese tribes, adulteresses were punished by having their faces smeared with white lime paste, and that in some Chinese operas, the villain would wear white face paint. So perhaps with this, Tanya was trying to shame Ha and Anita by coating them in the color. But... The creepiest theory is that Tanya did this so that the souls of Ha Jade and Anita Vo wouldn't be able to recognize their own bodies. With their faces obscured by paint, the two women would be forever splintered, two bodies in search of their souls, two souls in search of their bodies, and as such, would never find peace. After the murder, Anita's ex-boyfriend saw Ha's little dog, Mimi, a Pomeranian, wandering around outside of the house. This wasn't normal, and he knew it. Mimi was an extremely pampered dog and would have never been allowed to just roam outside by herself. And so he called the police. 
Six days after the murders, Tanya assumed Ha's identity and went on a shopping spree. She bought clothes and a new computer while still in California. She flew to Georgia, where her brother-in-law conveniently lived, and shopped some more. And she then booked a Memorial Day getaway for herself and all four of her children using the stolen credit cards of the women she'd just stabbed to death. When buying the tickets, she registered herself as Ha Jade Smith and her 13-year-old daughter as Anita Vo. At the end of May, when she and her kids landed back in Orange County for their special Memorial Day vacation, over 20 detectives trailed them out of the airport. They watched Tanya for a while. She checked into a hotel, visited her husband, and went on yet another shopping spree before they arrested her at the hotel where she was staying. During the month after the murders, before anyone was arrested while Tanya was treating herself to new clothes, Ha Jade's family was in utter agony. Ha's sister, Lone, had quit her job and moved down to Orange County from Canada when she heard the news. Now she was dedicating herself completely to cleaning the crime scene and restoring her sister's beautiful house. She replaced the blood-stained white carpet with a new one. She scrubbed the blood from the walls. She cleaned the black fingerprinting dust from the bathroom mirror. She set up an altar in memory of her sister and her niece, and she planted tulips, her sister's favorite flower. Lone slept on the living room floor while she was doing this work, and she was so consumed by anger and fear that her weight dropped from 110 pounds to 99 pounds. She and her siblings had decided not to tell their aging parents what had really happened, as their parents were in ill health and wouldn't have been able to handle it. And so Lone and her surviving sisters explained that Ha Jade and Anita Vo had died in a car crash. One of Ha's other sisters, Huang, gave away all the knives in her kitchen. She couldn't bear the thought of keeping knives in the house anymore. She was so afraid that one day someone would pick up one of her knives and use it on her daughter. Tanya's trial didn't start until 2010. More agony for Ha's family. But once it did, the prosecutors had a very important piece of evidence against her. That piece of evidence was Philippe who had flipped on the woman who'd once promised him love and was now the prosecution's star witness. He'd already pled guilty to two counts of first-degree murder, and in exchange for his cooperation, he was going to avoid both the death sentence and life without parole. He was eventually given 27 years to life. Tanya, however, was very much facing the death sentence. She was charged with those same two counts of murder and a whole slew of special circumstances that made it more and more likely that her punishment would be severe, committing multiple murders, murders for financial gain, and murders during the commission of robbery, burglary, and by lying in wait. The prosecutor, in her opening statement, said that this was a case involving, quote, greed, lust, obsession, revenge, incestuous relationships, straight sex, gay sex, the occult, threats, stealing things, and stealing lives. The trial moved quickly once it finally started, and by April, Tanya's sentencing was approaching. She had shown no remorse in the courtroom. In fact, she had to be removed from the courtroom at one point for yelling that she hadn't killed anyone. And now, faced with the death penalty, she made a half-hearted attempt at exonerating herself. 
She wrote a note that was passed to the judge saying that she didn't even know who Ha was and she couldn't have possibly killed her because Tanya had only taken that trip to Orange County to spy on her husband who was the one having the affair. The judge called her note a joke. As two of Ha's sisters read their victim's impact statement in which they called Tanya the queen of greed and evil, Tanya kept her back turned to them the entire time. The judge told her defense lawyer, to say your client has no remorse is to put it mildly. On April 23rd, he handed down her sentence. Death. Tanya Nelson will probably never die for her crimes. In March of 2019, the governor of California put the state's death penalty on hold. And so unless that changes, it's most likely that Tanya will rot away in prison until she dies of some natural death. After that, what becomes of her soul is anyone's guess. Though if Ha Jade has any power from the other side, Tanya's soul will probably never rest again. As if Tanya's history of murder, stalking, break-ins, cheating, and lying wasn't enough to condemn her, detectives searching her North Carolina residence found some evidence that she had been planning a third murder at the time of her capture, the murder of her brother-in-law George's wife. She had, in her home, a ski mask, a handgun, and what seemed to be a pre-written ransom note that read, we have your wife. There was one other piece of telling evidence in that house. Though Tanya showed zero remorse in the courtroom, detectives found one thing hinting that maybe, just maybe, somewhere inside that dark, dark soul, Tanya knew the seriousness of what she had done. There was a calendar sitting out on her desk with a little box for each date, and in the box for April 21st, 2005, which was the last day on earth for Ha Jade Smith and Anita Vo, someone had scribbled down two damning words. Horrible sin.
The end. Tanya is currently still on California's death row. Um, out of 737 inmates on the death row in California, she is one of 23 women. All right. Well, thank you for listening. And um, let's see. I've got a couple patrons to thank for making this episode possible. Um, the patrons for this week's episode are Anna Carafas and Rima Butterman. Thank you, you two incredible people. I wish you a summer full of extremely ripe tomatoes and sunshine that's not too oppressive. <laughs> Thank you so much. For everyone else who wants to become a patron, go to patreon.com slash criminalbroads and you will get various rewards like little postcards and posters and things. Um, and also for every episode, I'm going to post some bonus behind the scenes material, additional photos or facts that couldn't make it into this episode. So if you want to know more about Tanya Nelson and Ha Jade Smith, Go to patreon.com slash criminalbrods and become a patron at the $5 a month level or above. All right. Um, as usual, you know the drill, but um, follow Criminal Broads on Instagram to see photos of the women and the single man involved in today's episode. And uh, rate and review on iTunes if you're so inclined. That is always incredibly appreciated by Criminal Broads Incorporated. <laughs> And um, enjoy yourselves. And if there's one uh, lesson we can take from Tanya, it is this. Uh, take a little responsibility for your own life. Eh? If things are going bad, don't put 1,000% of the blame on your fortune teller or your therapist or your spiritual leader or your parents. <laughs> okay. Thanks for being such great listeners. Love you all. And I will talk to you next time. Goodbye. Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. Loving you, dear, like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.